With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of Crossed Up, a Phillies podcast here on the Crossing Broad Network. I am Anthony Sanfilippo at AntSanPhilly on Twitter, joined by Crossing Broad Phillies writer Bob Wankel uh, at BW Crossing Broad um, on Twitter. Bob, it's going to be an interesting day today on our show because I, I really have a feeling that one thing and one thing only is going to dominate the conversation, and that is our wonderful manager, Gabe Kapler. We're going to well, be laser. Uh, <laughs> we're going to be laser focused on this today. <laughs> yeah, laser focused. It's a, it's funny because we record. We're recording Tuesday morning here. We've had four days now to kind of let this thing uh, simmer and kind of assess what we've watched uh, or what we watched last weekend. And uh, if we recorded this thing on Thursday night, uh, I probably would have been out of my mind. Uh, if we would have recorded this thing on Saturday night, I probably would have been out of my mind. But they didn't. They didn't play Sunday. They didn't play yesterday. It kind of allowed us to sit back and really assess this uh, entire mess of a situation with a little bit more measure, uh, but it's still not pretty. I, I don't know what we just watched last weekend, and in one week, this guy has managed to take my optimism regarding this team, and, and really kind of my optimism regarding him, and uh, he has uh, significantly, I guess I guess the most polite way to say it is that he has significantly lessened that optimism uh, in three games against a bad Braves team. Yeah, and it, it, I I don't disagree with you. I I'll be honest. I I was one of those people who was kind of on the fence with him. Um, uh, I I I'm not one of the people who is hardcore 100 percent analytics, but I also am not completely old school where I don't want you know I want everything to be traditional, but I I want the situations to be taken on a case by case basis. And you, you look at it and say, okay this is a time where we can use our data to our advantage or this is a time where conventional wisdom uh, works out uh, better than anything so we should we should follow that and and really you know each individual case take it uh, you know one step at a time and uh, so I was willing to give him time and and in a lot of senses I still am willing to see if he can figure it out okay it's only been three games but boy has it been a bad bad three games and not just from the managerial perspective but from the team as well and we'll get into that later in the in the program here um but it, it really it, when your manager is making national news for being and being mocked at for making national news i have a real issue with you know with wondering where exactly he is because if everybody is talking about it negatively that means that there is not not even the most ardent supporters of 
the analytical approach to baseball are behind him. Yeah, I mean, I really, the only one, the only guy I think who has really come to his defense, and it was even a partial defense, was Brian Kenny on on the MLB Network, where he said, "Well, I guess I'd rather have a guy." Uh, who's trying something, make a mistake while trying something new than making a mistake by doing it the old-fashioned way. And I guess that's that's the most ringing endorsement he's gotten. So I think that's something that is that is the biggest red flag here is that no one has come out to say, yeah, this is okay, you know, it'll, it'll work out. Not one person, and that's, that's what scares me more than anything. Yeah, Will Leach wrote something last night for uh, MLB.com, and they, they you know, pointed out the guy was a, a – High, highly touted minor league player. He was doing K Swiss ads in the mid '90s. Uh, you know, he played in major leagues for 12, 12 years. He was a Dodgers director of uh, player development. I mean, th- there are a lot of things that I know he doesn't have a lot of managerial experience, but the guy's been around the game for a really long time. And you would like to think that because he's been around the game for such a long time, that he would be able to execute uh, the most basic fundamental maneuvers uh, as he's, you know, going through the game, but. You know, you watch it, and the idea of taking out Aaron Nola, obviously not a, a great move, uh, and we saw how that unfolded. The benching Odubel Herrera at game one. Uh, you fast forward to Friday night. They win the game, but uh, eight different pitchers used out of the bullpen. Uh, just a total mess. What was it, 21 pitching moves to complete 28 innings this weekend? Um, you know, you have Pedro Florimon pitching late in the game on Saturday night because I'm- he washed up the bullpen earlier. I mean, the, the whole thing was a mess. But to me, I think the biggest issue and the thing that he really has to deal with now, it's not the tactical issues. It's not the, well, you know, I don't really get what he's doing here. I think that that stuff can kind of smooth itself out. I think that that stuff can work itself out. And I do think that to some extent he ran into a little bit of bad luck this first weekend. But I think the real issue is, is if I'm a player and I'm watching what I just watched unfold over the last three games, or the first three games for that matter, I would be sitting there in the clubhouse saying, does this guy know what he's doing? And and I think that he runs the risk of potentially losing uh, this locker room. It's a young team. It's an impressionable team. It's a talented team that has some true expectations. And you know, the way that this thing unfolded, I just, if I were some of these guys, I'd be looking at him going, it's great that you're a communicator and you're a player's coach and, and all this other stuff and you're a progressive thinker and he seems like a nice guy. But if I'm a player, I, I'm looking at this going, what the hell is going on? And I think that that's, that's the thing that he's going to have to overcome. And he doesn't have, an, in my opinion, a ton of time to do it. Because obviously the media is against him. The, the fan base has already turned against him. And I don't know to what extent his locker room has turned against him. But I can tell you that Odubel Herrera probably wasn't thrilled about being benched on opening day. And I don't think that Aaron Nola was real thrilled about being removed after 68 pitches in a stress-free game. And, and so right off the bat, I, I think a couple of his players have already been tweaked. Yeah, no, I think you're you're exactly right, and people forget sometimes. And we were talking about this on the uh, hockey podcast, Snow the Goalie, with Russ Joy and I the other uh, yesterday, where um, you know the human element of sports is often forgotten. Um, we all want to look at statistics, and we all want to look at these players like they're like they're robots. And in a lot of ways, what we forget is they are actually human with emotions and feelings, and these players young impressionable as they are they have emotions and feelings as well and they're not going to if things are not going well they're going to start questioning well why aren't things going well and if things aren't going well in a progressive system 
they're going to sit there and say, well, geez, why don't we just do it the way it's supposed to be done? Which is the way it's been done for 140 years, um, and I think that you're so. I think you nail that. I think that you're right on board with that. That is the biggest concern. Um, you know, we could sit here and, and break down every decision that he makes, right? And that's what kind of what we're going to do as 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 observers of the of the game and observers of the team. Um, like like the the very first uh, move that I thought that he blew in the opening day is something that no one talked about. Because it got so crazy with the whole pulling Nola and everything, but it was before he pulled, pulled Nola. The Phillies had a runner on runner on first and uh, and one out, and Nola's up to bat. Nola's a lifetime 070 whatever hitter, and it's the so it's the inning before, um, and he doesn't call for he doesn't call for a bunt, and Nola hits a weak tapper back to the mound. And grounds into a double play, and I sit there and say, "Well, that's pretty damn stupid. You have a pitcher up there who can't hit. Why are you having him swing away when you got the top of the order coming up? Just, just bunt him over, right? Bunt the guy over. Very simple thing. And nobody talked about that, obviously, because it wasn't that important. A and B, you know, the things that happened later were far more magnified. But we're so we're going to look at every little thing that he does, every decision, managerial decision, and now the microscope just got bigger. The spotlight has is shining a lot harsher um, on him. So everything that he says and does, we're going to look at. But you're right. I mean, it, 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 the more important thing is how is he viewed, not by me and you or the media or the fans, but how is he viewed inside that clubhouse? How are those players? Well, uh, and him? here's the other thing that here's the other thing that I kind of wonder about, and and this I think is a concern as well. Um, where is where is Matt Klentak? Where is the front office? Now I know that they had uh, the snow day yesterday up at City Field, uh, so you know what goes into that with the pregame press conferences, interviews, things like that. There wasn't the media availability, but I do think it's a little bit peculiar that there hasn't been somebody that's come out, whether it be a player or somebody in the front office, that said, "Hey, you know what? We have a lot of faith in Gabe. Uh, we've gotten to know him over the last couple months in spring training. We understand that this is going to be a little bit of a process. It's not always going to run smoothly. We're going to do." things a little bit differently but he is uh you know implementing our organizational philosophy and we're comfortable with what happened you know this past weekend we know that it wasn't an ideal situation but we're fully confident that it's going to be rectified and there really hasn't been any of that and I'm, I'm a little bit surprised that some of the players didn't say hey listen it's it's just a couple games, you know. Gabe's Gabe's going to be fine. I mean, Hobie Milner kind of said, "Yeah, you know, I, I didn't get an opportunity to warm up on uh, Saturday night. It it wasn't an ideal situation." Aaron Nola kind of said, "Yeah, I had plenty of left, to, or I had plenty left in the tank when he was removed on Thursday." Oduble Herrera said, "I'm pissed, you know, that I didn't get the start on opening day." There just hasn't been any of those. At least throw me a cliche. At least come out and say, hey, you know what, like uh, we'll be all right, even if you don't believe it. And and the fact that it, there's been this deafening silence uh, from the Phillies uh, over these first few days, I think, is kind of peculiar. Yeah, and and, I, and I, as someone who's been down there and been around the team, I, I don't think that the Phillies are an incompetent organization as far as you know availability and and making people talk. I, I think the Phillies are actually pretty good. Um, they're maybe not the best in town. Uh, but they're towards they're toward the top. They're better than I mean. It used to be really bad down there, but they've gotten better over the last several years. Um, 
And so, the, so you're right to not hear from the general manager when there is national attention on your manager for the mistakes that he's made, and there are people who are saying to fire the guy after three days or three games, which is which is a little bit crazy. Um, to not hear from the general manager, or not hear from Andy McPhail, or really to not hear from John Middleton. Um, who is a media darling, and I wouldn't be surprised if you know a lot of guys who cover this team have him on speed dial. Um, so to not hear from any of them over the past couple of days it is a, it should be alarming. It should be alarming that they have not come to the defense of their manager unless they're sitting there saying the only thing I can think of is this: is that they sit there and they had a meeting with him and said, "All right, listen, you screwed up so badly this first weekend." that you have to now take this hit. You have to deal with it and deal with it all on your own. And if it happens again, then we'll come out and say something. But if, but for now, it was such a poor job that you have to own it. And and I think that that's, that might be the only reason we haven't heard from them. I'm not defending that. I, I'd like to hear from the, from the upper management in this situation. But at the same time, if I'm trying to guess as to why we haven't, that's the only thing I can come up with, Bob, as to why we haven't heard from them yet. Well, you said it's a, it's a little bit crazy, some of the reaction here. I mean, I, I couldn't have been any less pleased with what I saw uh, over the first three games. I mean, I was uh, I, I destroyed them on the blog. Uh, I, I kind of I, I went at them on Thursday. I went at them on, on Sunday morning. I woke up and I kind of just recapped everything that I thought that he did wrong in the first three games. Uh, I'm concerned about what I'm watching. I don't know that this is going to work. Uh, I can understand that it's a small sample size, but... I also do think that there are serious philosophical issues here at play that, that could extend well into this season, and I don't know that they get rectified. I don't know that he's the right guy for the job. With that said, the thing that I think is the craziest the craziest aspect of this entire story is that we're sitting here after three games, and there is legitimate discussion on you know reputable websites on sports talk radio from the host guys even that are a little bit you know generally a little bit more even keel talking about whether or not this guy should lose his job three games into the season now I was absolutely disgusted with what I saw but I think and I don't know where you're at on this I I think it's crazy absolutely crazy to talk about this guy losing his job at this point and it amazes me guys like Howard Eskin Glenn Macknell guys that have been around the block they're not like you know people uh, that that are just blogging away in their mother's basement we're talking about well well received traditional media types talking about whether or not this guy should have his job anymore and I, it just blows my mind that this is a legitimate conversation this isn't some guy calling into WIP saying you know this this isn't my type of manager this isn't this isn't a guy that's going to be able to win this guy's crazy I mean these are people that that have been around the game even like Todd Zalecki's taking some shots in there I mean and he's a, a major league baseball employee uh, you know from a national perspective guys are taking taking some jabs and I mean it, it's amazing and I don't know if it's because he's a little bit unorthodox. I don't know if it's because of, of of some of the other stories that have come out about him throughout the offseason. I don't know what it is, but it, we're sitting here three games in after one series of baseball talking about whether or not this guy should be employed anymore, and it, it blows my mind. Yeah, it does, and and, and I, I, I'm kind of along the same lines as you, although I, I think I understand the perspective from the media um, as someone who's been down there because – 
I'll tell you, these people would not be going so hardcore with their reactions if they weren't being greased a little bit by someone to tell them to, you know, that this is a concern. In other words, the media in this town is not is not as reactionary. They're, you know, we we talk a lot about how they they tend to be apologists more than anything else uh, in this city for. Uh, the teams and the way the way that they play and the, and the or where the organizations are run, um, and this was a situation where three games into a season, all of a sudden you got you know big name media types questioning whether the guy should even have a job. So that tells me that there's someone telling them that, and um, and that's a, that's scary. That's scary if there's someone in the organization who doesn't think he should have this gig. Um, that's not good. Um, uh, you know, I, 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 you know, we talk about asking, he, he puts a lot of stuff out on Twitter. I, I actually heard him on the radio this morning and, um, you know, he's got players texting him, uh, WTF, um, at least that's what he says. But I mean, at the same time, you know, uh, you know, Howard's not always correct. I mean, he, you know, he's reported stuff many times that it's not been right. So y- you take it with a grain of salt. But, you know, when you see, like you said, so many members of the media doing this and going a little bit outside the outside of their own, you know, comfortable box because they don't usually get so critical so quick to do that really raises that flag for me that says there's something behind this. People within this organization are concerned. And an interesting thing that one thing that I found interesting that Howard did say this morning was he had said that, um, you know, because Kapler went for the Dodgers job a couple years ago before Dave Roberts got it, um, and that there are people with the Dodgers who uh, they went to some players and asked, you know, would they thought if if Kapler was a guy that they would want as their manager, and according to Howard, um, they said, no, we don't want him, we don't want him, we don't want him. There, There was a big concern there. And the reason I think that Howard has a connection in L.A., is uh, their president out there is Ned Coletti, and Ned Coletti used to be a member of the Philadelphia media. <laughs> so, uh, so there is something there. Okay, so if I like if I'm putting if I'm putting pieces together and say, well, you know, how would Howard know what the inner workings of the Dodgers are? Well, there there's the connection, right? So things like that really make me concerned that there are people in baseball, and not only just in baseball, but with the Phillies, who are concerned about him as a manager. Yeah, check this out. This is a, a pretty interesting quote from a story that ran on the uh, Phillies website last night. I think it was Todd Zalecki. He had a chance to sit down with Kapler. And uh, Kapler says, you know, I'm very well aware of the perception thus far. I'm empathetic to the viewpoint. If people are upset, <laughs> they have a right to be upset. And it's my job to be aware and responsive to that. And so Zalecki says, how do you respond to that? And he goes, I spent the off day putting together bullpen usage guidelines, talking to our front office, talking to our field staff talking to our players and putting together action steps in how to manage our bullpen as effectively as possible. Don't you think that that's something that maybe should have been discussed in, like, I don't know, February? I mean, it amazes me. It, it, 
it really concerns me that after the first series, this is when he decides to speak to the front office and, and some of the players and his field staff about how he plans to utilize his bullpen. I mean, were you that underprepared? Were you that clueless coming into the series that you just were just so far out of touch with, with conventional wisdom and how to properly utilize your bullpen that you had to reassess on your day off how to do this. I mean, that to me is, um, I, I think he was trying to be honest, which I, I appreciate the honesty, but I mean, th- is that not a concern? How about if I give it to you the opposite way? What if I told you he wasn't being honest at all and he was BSing us with this? Because You know I, what? It, it's almost like, is it, the, the one thing that people got all up in arms about is that, you know, he didn't come out and say, I shouldn't have yanked Nola. But the, the risk that he runs there is if after one game or one series, he comes out and says, you know, the entire uh, foundation of my philosophy, uh, I've completely backtracked on. I've decided that, yes, after three games, my core fundamental beliefs, I, I've completely gone and, and taken a 180 on them. I, I think that that in and of itself is a concern because that would raise eyebrows, I think, too, all I think all the players would say, this guy sat here for two months and preached X, Y, and Z, and now he's saying the complete opposite. So, I, I mean, I don't even know. I, I, you know it, I think what's going to happen is you're going to have to wait and see how it plays out, and that's all we can really do. But uh, I, I don't think he's in a – I think it's like a no-win situation, to be honest with you. Yeah, I, he was in a no-win situation after he made that made that call. So what I mean by BSing is not necessarily that his his philosophy was, you know, he can't come out and say I, our philosophy was wrong. But I think what what I mean by that is that I think that he did not I don't think he spent the off day putting together bullpen usage guidelines and putting together action steps because you know, this just sounds this is more business cliche talk that he does, right? And I think that he's very well prepared for what he's doing and saying. I, I really do. I think the guy is meticulous in that regard. And I think that what he's doing is he's feeding his lines that I don't buy a little bit. I have a feeling that his off day was spent in a different manner than putting together bullpen usage guidelines. Okay? Um, and, and, you know, the whole thing with, you know, he, yeah, of course, he can't come out and say, I was, uh, yeah, I made a mistake with the Aaron Nola thing. I mean, you know, the easy thing to, for him to say, the easiest thing for him to say would have been, you know what, I, I had a, a feeling there, I went with my gut on it, and it didn't work out, and now we're going to play catch up and figure it out. That would, I think we would have accepted that. I've been like, okay, it was the wrong decision. He kind of said, yeah, I went with my gut on it, and uh, was not, it didn't work out for us. We'll, we'll get it fixed up. We'll get it fixed up. But to double down on this, to double down on the plan. I mean, here's another situation where I tell you that I think he's lying to you. We came into in that same story by Zalecki. Here's another quote talking about the NOLA thing. We came into the season understanding that we had a nine-man pen. We also knew the season, you know, whatever, we have blah, 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 and he goes on further. And then he says, um, uh, because we had the off day coming up, because we had a nine-man pen, we had the ability to mix and match. We had the ability to be creative, and we had the ability to match up. Well, he knew he didn't have a nine-man pen because he knew Neshek wasn't available. So he now has eight, okay? So that's why I'm telling you, he's, I think he's feeding us a line right now. I really do. I don't believe what he's saying. He sounds like a, uh, like a, like a salesman. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I'm going to give you an example. I, I, and I don't want to say where or who because I, I might give it away, but I had a, 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 a supervisor at a previous job who talked and talked and talked a great game and did not know a damn thing about what he was talking about. 
and ultimately left his position because he failed at it as a manager. Um, and the problem, the problem was, was that he wanted us to believe that he knew what he was talking about. And he, so he talked to us in all of this flowing language and we were supposed, and, and every time we asked a question, he would always say, Oh, you know, that's a really good question. And then, you know, give you kind of a half-assed response, right? And I get, and I li- listen to Kapler talk and I'm like, geez, this is reminding me of this, this guy like to a T like to and so when i hear it it's like this is the same concept it's the same kind of personality and that can that's a concern for me as well because it's like i don't care what he's going he's going to come out and say whatever he feels he needs to say but he's going to do whatever the hell he wants to do anyway and and that's what i that's why i don't think he wants to talk about how great a communicator he is he's a great communicator as long as you buy into what he's saying but if you try and challenge what he's saying he's not a very good communicator so I listen to you say that, and I'm going to ask you the this is, this question is going to seem weird, and I ask it for a reason. Do you like him? It's a tough question. I don't know. I, I, I I'm not going to sit here and say I I despise the guy, uh, and I don't like the guy because I, I a I don't know him. I've never I've never talked to him at least not yet. I mean I'm sure I'll have an opportunity um, once they start playing home games to be down there and, and actually interview the guy. Um, so I, I can only go off of what I see. Uh, in video or what I read um, from the guys who've, who have talked to him, I, I, I don't. So no, I, I can't say I don't like him, but I can't say I like him either. Um, there's there's that level of uncertainty, but I do I do have the the BS detector out, and I do sense that, and, and I do sense that he's feeding me some lines. But I have friends who are BSers all the time, right? <laughs> and and they're still friends of mine. I like them as people, and I just know that they're. I know that they're full of it, but well, I think that the hope is this. I think that he knows that he's in a tough town. I think he knows that the fan base here doesn't have a ton of patience. I think that he's probably aware of those things, and so what he's going to do is he's going to try to BS his way through the early part of this because he he knows. Listen, people are going to take their shots, and and maybe he has such confidence in himself, and maybe he has such confidence in his ability to execute this plan that the Phillies have in place that. He says, you know what, take your shots, you say what you want to say, I'm just going to go out and I'm going to feed you some corporate speak, I'll buy myself some time, and we're going to start winning games, and then you know everyone's going to forget about this, and I'm going to be right, and we're going to have done it my way, and, and it's all good. And I that's the only thing, and I don't know that that's, I mean, not only do I not know, I actually don't think that's the case, but if you're really looking for some optimism here, if you're looking for something to fall back on, he might just be a guy that says, I don't really care what you think, I'm going to just go out and I'm going to try to quell this as best as I can, keep taking taking your shots and, and wait three, four weeks from now, and, and then we'll reassess the situation. And I think you're going to have a much different perspective uh, and a much more different outlook on my ability to manage this team. And and that's the only thing uh, that I think you can maybe, and I think that's grasping at straws, but I, I just kind of wonder. I mean, like, I, lo- I think I like the guy. He's really goofy. Uh, he, he's definitely a strange dude. Uh, I don't know if you caught that story about him, like, licking the ice cream and then spinning it back into the bowl because he, you know, is so <laughs> meticulous about his health and all of that. I yeah. mean, he's a weird guy, but I want him here because he makes for great conversation. He makes for very easy, uh, easy blog posts. I mean, this guy is like a gift from God for me. So, you know, I want him to win. Uh, I want him to succeed here. I think it would be cool if he did, but it's just, I, I kind of, I, I looked at him walking out to the mound the other day and I just said to myself, like, 
do, do I like this guy? And it's been a question that I've been kind of asking myself over the last three or four days, you know, and it's, it's just it's just something to think about. It's a weird question, but I, I, I think I like the guy and I, I, I kind of think that he's a little bit smarter than we're giving him credit for, but I guess we're going to find out. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're I think you're right on point with that. And, and I think that that's probably how he views himself or how he views his situation in the sense that. Um, he has really no other choice but to do it, the, the, to approach it this way until he's successful, at which point he can then say, um, like, yeah, see, I told you, it's it's working. Um, but but until that point, he's going to just keep feeding us the lines that he's feeding us and hope we bite on it. And I think that might have worked in other places. It just doesn't. It doesn't work in Philadelphia. It, this is just a. It, you know, there are certain sports towns where you can't. You can't try and pull the. You know, the, the blinders over the eyes of of the fans, and you know, Philly, New York, Boston, um, maybe Chicago. Uh, it, you just can't do it in those cities because they don't. They're not going to. They're not going to buy it. They they know too much. They're too late. They're they're too laser focused on their teams. It's not just kind of like a oh this is a hobby that oh we go to the game oh we root for the team yeah 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 and then we go back to our you know regular lives in these cities and you know as you well know we live our sports this is part of our lives and that's why we uh, we react the way we do and I think that that's what Kapler has to learn that he has to figure out that I think he has to figure out that his corporate speak is not going to fly here if he comes if he can come up with a way. I'll say this. If he can come up with a way to connect with the fans, even during times when things aren't going right, he will get a far uh, longer rope with them. But until he does, we're we're in a situation where, for Gabe Kapler, they better win tonight and tomorrow. Otherwise, Thursday is going to be an embarrassing day for him. When they introduce him as the manager in front of a sold-out Citizens Bank Park, yeah, and not, and not to mention that Doug Peterson of all people is going to throw out the first pitch <laughs> at Citizens Bank Park on Thursday afternoon. It is a tale of two coaches. You have the most loved guy in the city right now. Uh, the guy can do no wrong, and then you have uh, the villain Gabe Kapler. So the uh, juxtaposition of those two right now and where they stand in our sports landscape should be, I think, pretty interesting uh, in and of itself. I joked on the blog last night that what they should have done. One uh, is they should have Peterson go out, and I think a lot of people made this joke, so I don't feel as good about it. I don't feel quite so clever now. I think that, that uh, quite a few people on Twitter kind of made the same jab, but you know, have uh, Doug Peterson go out there, throw a perfect strike, 84 miles an hour at the knees, and then have Kapler go out and remove him afterward as long as uh, Pavetta is warmed up and ready to go, which you don't know if he will be. I know, so, right? yeah, I don't know, man. I, you know, the one thing I will say is as bad as Gabe Kapler was, uh, the players didn't really do him any favors either, right? So, I mean, obviously Aaron Nola was outstanding in Game 1, but Nick Pavetta uh, gave him no length in Game 2, and, and Vince Velasquez was a disaster in, in Game 3, and that really exacerbated uh, the issues for Gabe Kapler, and his bullpen didn't do him any favors in Game 1 either. And so, it's it's certainly he set the tone for this weekend, but he didn't really get a ton of backup, especially from his pitching staff. No, you're right. I mean, they didn't. They didn't do well. Um, Velasquez was the the biggest concern. But I mean, we said that in our first 
podcast together, Bob. I mean, we were we were really concerned about him being a one trick pony who's been figured out, and uh, it, it, it's the same thing. I mean, I, is is he a mental midget? I mean, it's the same concept. Every batter, he's trying to blow you away with that fastball, 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 fastball until they you know they're fouling him off and fouling him off, and then finally they connect and he's befuddled as to why. I mean, you show a major league hitter the same pitch four, five, six times, they're going to figure it out. They're going to hit it eventually. So I, I, he's he's more frustrating to me than than Pavetta, although Pavetta did not give a great start either because he didn't – I mean, could he have gone may, – uh, maybe you could have stuck him with, stuck with him another inning, maybe. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not as upset with pulling him out when he did. He wasn't having a great start. He wasn't having a terrible start, but he wasn't having a great start. Um, I, I think the only reason I may have left him in a little bit longer uh, is just because they used up so many relievers in opening day unnecessarily that maybe you sit there and say, well, if this guy can get us through one more inning, then we don't have to worry about, you know, we can kind of manage the bullpen a little bit better. Yeah, and Pavetta um, struggled a little bit. I mean, he, he struggled a little bit on Friday night in, uh, I think, the third and fourth innings. Uh, yeah. Dansby Swanson got him and got him out of the game. But he at least came out and, and showed you something those first two innings. I mean, the curveball was pretty sharp. And you can see where the ceiling, you can see that projection with him. With Velasquez, I, I think that there's this this false perception that he has electric stuff and that he uh, just can't really figure out a way to put it all together. Here's a, a little bit of a hot take for you. I don't think his stuff is all that good. I think he just throws hard, and I think his stuff is eminently hittable, and I know that everyone thinks the solution is, well, just move him to the back end of the bullpen. He'll be a hell of a closer because he throws hard, and I, I don't think that that's necessarily true. I mean, I think that batters get very good swings on his stuff uh, more often than not, and I don't know that there's a... A solution that, that that is just hey, just throw him in the bullpen, shorten him up, only have him focus on one or two innings, and it'll be good to go. I don't know that that rectifies what ails him, and I mean certainly I think we may find out because I don't at this point believe that he's going to be able to put it together as a starting pitcher. I get why they needed to roll the dice with him. I know that they felt that he had a ceiling once upon a time, but now after uh, unless you look at it, there's a couple anomalies mixed in there, but for the most part, he is what he is, and I. I just am completely skeptical about his ability to rectify his issues and and blossom into what people once thought he could be. And I don't know that a, a move to the bullpen is simply going to fix that. No, I, you're right. I mean, you know, he, he does he have swing and miss stuff? Eh, I don't know, a little bit, but it's not enough, right? I mean, you, you look at guys who are at the back end of a bullpen who are blowing people away, and their, their strikeout rates are really high. Right, really, really high. You're talking, you know, 10, 11 per nine. Velasquez is, I think, last year was what eight and a half. He might have been nine the year before. I mean, that's okay, but it's you're right. It's not automatic swing and miss stuff, and, and you know, and pe- people are going to get bats on balls on him, and you might get even more frustrated with him at the back end of the bullpen because. Now he's going to really think he has to rely on that fastball more than anything else, um, and uh, and if he gets hit, yeah. he gets he gets hit. 
And and that's really my issue. It's yeah, sure he generates swings and misses, but when he allows contact, it's it's quality contact. And I think that that's the, the biggest issue. And I know it's only one start, and I'm not going to bury the guy completely. But I don't know how much longer I would go with him. Uh, I think that you give him April uh, and and maybe into May, maybe give him about eight starts just to see if there's any growth. You know, I'm not looking for the guy to come out and be Cy Young or be an All Star pitcher, but there's got to be some type of growth. And and it, it goes beyond his inability to get deep into games. It's just that he's he's more often than not fairly ineffective. And and I think that with the depth that the Phillies have, um, though it's not top of the rotation depth, uh, you know, it's certainly these aren't guys that are going to be two or three starters. They have enough arms in this organization that I don't think that you have to to really die by Vince Velasquez as, as this season progresses. I mean, go to Mark Leiter uh, when Eichoff comes back. Perhaps, uh, you know, Velasquez is the guy that gets bumped out of the rotation when he returns. I mean, to me, there was once upon a time, I really had high hopes for this guy, but I, I think that, that that day is about to come to an end, and, and it's a shame. Um, and beyond that, just to be a little bit more positive here, uh, Reese Hoskins and Scott Kingery, a hell of a start for those two guys now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, my favorite thing about Hoskins was his fir- literally the first at bat of the season. They have that bit. Braves have that huge shift over uh, to left toward left field, um, and we're seeing this with almost every batter now. Not not just like your power hitters, but a lot of guys are getting shifted. And he sees a first pitch coming on the outer half, and in, rather than take it, you know, as as a lot of power hitters will, because you ain't driving that ball, you know, over a fence. He decides, well, they're playing me, they're playing me the opposite way. I'm just going to reach out and poke it down the right field line, and that's exactly what he did for a double. That to me is, you know, when you hear Matt Clintech talk about, um, you know, controlling controlling the the strike zone and controlling, you know, the discipline at the plate. That is that that is discipline. It's not about necessarily just taking pitches, you know, and forcing pitchers to work. Reese Hoskins, that was the first pitch he saw, and he and he took advantage of the way that the defense was playing against him. That's that's indicative of what a a, a someone who is a good young player. Uh, continuing to to hone his craft, and and that's something that Phillies fans should really be excited about. And of course, Kingery, um, <laughs> I wanted to see him as the pinch hitter on opening day instead of Pedro Florimone. Yeah, uh, I can't we, imagine why. <laughs> but we got we got two starts out of him and two hit two two hit games for him. So let me tell you something about Scott Kingery that that stuck out to me on uh, Friday night. Obviously, first game multi-hit game that's great he comes up uh after his first at bat and he looks foolish he strikes out and it looks pretty ugly he comes back though and boom right up the middle base hit Uh, i believe in his third at bat there was a runner on second less than two outs and he was trying he was visibly trying to advance the runner to third base and he lined out to right field and he kind of inside out a little bit but you could see the approach you could see what he was trying to do there was a clear plan and when you have such a young hitter in his first major league game you can see how cerebral it is and and you you could see what he was trying to do in that at bat, and he kind of just ran in some bad luck. He hit the ball fairly hard, but it was right at, uh, I guess it was Marcakis out there, uh, if I had a guess. And you could just see, you're like, man, this guy, he gets it. And when I talked a little bit last week about him being a, the type of player that can define the character of a team. I think the people are just going to fall in love with this guy because, A, the production, which is obviously the most important thing here, but B, the sense that 
he knows what he's doing. He really, truly has an approach. He's trying to do the right things. And then he follows it up on Saturday with another multi-hit game. And, I mean, with all the expectations facing this kid, I mean, because the, the way that he's been billed, especially after he signs the contract extension, people expect big things out of him. And, and some lesser guys, you know, lesser players that, that aren't quite as mentally tough might not come out and, and kind of click right away. They might feel some pressure there, and he just hits the ground running. And it's extremely, extremely encouraging when you pair his performance performance with Hoskins uh, over the first uh, you know cu- couple games here. Yeah, I, I really didn't have much of an issue with anybody in the lineup as far as at the plate. I mean, there was a couple of instances, I think, where maybe in the opener they had uh, – when I mean, it was – yeah, it was the opening game. Hoskins, you know, is, gets his second double. He's on second base, and the next three guys – yeah. All, all were all were not good, but I mean, it other was the, than the uh, seventh inning, uh, yeah. they didn't advance him over. Obviously, they could have used that run, and then I believe they Atlanta struck out the side in the eighth and ninth. I believe seven yeah. of the last nine Phillies struck out in that game. Situational hitting was poor there, but you know I don't want to make any wholesale judgments right. uh, on their inability to play you know small ball or execute in tight spots off of one game. I, yeah, you know, now, I'll destroy the manager after a game, but I, I'm not going to go after the players quite yet. You know, right, right, and you're and that's fair because I think I think it was other than. Other than that little stretch in that first game, I actually thought that they were their approach at the plate has been really good. And and you look at what guys have done, um, even even the guys that aren't quote unquote hitting. I mean, you know, Crawford's taking a lot of pitches. He's walking. He's getting on base. Um, so that that's a good sign. I mean, Mike Calfranco taking that walk with the bases loaded on opening day. Yeah, he walked twice that. on opening day. I mean, those are things that he'd never done before. So you know, I mean, I, you know, Nick Williams. Well, I'll didn't... tell you one one at bat I was really impressed with was uh, Carlos Santana late in the game on Friday yeah. night. Uh, yeah. You know, he got behind in the count. They needed a uh, sack fly there. They needed deep contact, and then he squared up a ball, drove it, I think, to the warning track, scored the run. And I mean, he gave them some very professional at bats in that game on Friday night, and. and and really, without those at bats, they don't win that game, and they're they're walking out of Atlanta having been swept. So there were things like like you said that I thought, at least from a positional standpoint, from an offensive standpoint, that were were positive. And obviously, Aaron Nola's performance was positive, and the bullpen was was effective on Friday night after a collapse on Thursday night. And so, I think from a team standpoint, what we're looking at here in terms of player performance, it's really hard, especially now not having played in two days, to to make. Any any real statements, any real conclusions about what we've seen? I just think that, and this does roll back into Kapler a little bit, you watch this team and they are much more talented than they were a year ago. I mean, every single player that they send to the plate has a chance to do something, has a chance to grow, has a chance if the Phillies are going to be a contender, whether it be this season, next season, 2020, every single guy that they're sending to the plate has a chance to be a part of that and make significant contributions to it. And and you can see that this is a much more talented team. Now, I don't know what the bullpen's going to be like without Neshek, him missing extended time, without uh, Tommy Hunter, you know, missing extended time here to start the season. There's going to be holes in that bullpen, I think, which is also part of the reason why it's it's absolutely outrageous that Kapler has relied upon them to the extent that he has over the first three games. They're a little bit shaky, in my opinion, but you can see the talent on this team, and I think that that's why people are so agitated and, and on so on edge and have so little tolerance for what they watch this weekend. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right, and, and yeah, there's there's going to be a lot of moments this year where we're going to be impressed, I think, with this team. Um, and maybe in spite of their manager, I mean, they're going to go out there and they're going to do things and be like, "Wow!" I mean, that's 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 a pro ball player. That's a good ball player right there. 
Um, but I also think that there's going to be moments of of gut wrenching. <laughs> uh, you know, defeat and and, uh, and and we're gonna sit there and we're gonna be frustrated sometimes, and that's I think that's all part of the growing process, and I, I think that's why when we're we're sitting here and both of us kind of look at them as five hundred or maybe a little bit better, um, and I think we're gonna that over the course of one hundred and sixty two games we're going to have that, and as long as they're look, I look at it this way: as long as the team is winning and losing by playing baseball. Then I don't have a problem with with the growing pains that are going to happen this year. I just don't want games taken away from them. I don't want games taken out of their hands, and that's what that's what I felt was certainly happened opening day, um, and 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 so I don't want to see that kind of rear its ugly head multiple times. Well, you said it earlier. They better find a way to get at least one up in New York over the next two days, or this is going to uh, be very, very ugly come Thursday uh, yes. when they get home. Now, uh, what do you want to do before we get out of here? You want to talk about the shift? And you want to yeah, talk well, about bunting? Yeah, Let's talk you know, about we, that. Yeah, so the thing, this thing happened. I don't know if uh, I sent this um, – uh, the story over to you um, through our through our chat session, but um, just in case people uh, didn't notice this, the other it was it uh, su- Sunday, I believe it was. The Twins were playing the Orioles, and Twins are up seven to nothing. Uh, Jose Barrios, their young uh, stud pitcher, is pitching a complete game shutout, and um, it's the ninth inning, and the rookie catcher for the Orioles, Chance Cisco, comes up to bat, and he's left-handed, so they put the shift on. And Cisco lays a bunt down the third baseline and gets on base. The Orioles ended up loading the bases um, before uh, Barrios got the last two guys out and ended up getting the shutout. Um, but uh, after the game, um, some reporters ask uh, Brian Dozier, the second baseman for the Twins, what he thinks about it. And he says, that's bad for the game to lay down a bunt in that situation. So, Bob, I ask you. Is it bad for the game, or is it, or is it just, hey, we're trying to figure out any way we can to get on base and try and start a rally and win this thing? And if you're going to shift us and give us that, give us that bunt, well, then we're going to take it. I think if you're going to shift as a defense, then the offense has the right to counteract that that defensive strategy any way that they want to. If that requires them to bunt to try to finally move fielders back into their more natural positions, their more normal positions, then I think that they should be entitled to do that. I actually think that it's that's an insane claim to make. Um, I, I, you could we could argue about the shift. We could talk about what the shift has done to Major League Baseball. Um, uh, you know, personally, I'm in favor of it. I, I think that. That if you have, uh, I thought we were going to get through a show without, you know, saying analytics and data and at least 40 times here, but <laughs> the analytics and data have shown that, you know, defenses need to set up a certain way to try to limit uh, offensive production. Um, okay, fine. That's fair. But then if you're an offense, why, if, if you're going to be a hitter that is going to have hits taken away from you by a defense playing a shift, why don't you have the ability to, or why shouldn't you have the ability to lay down bunts to try to counteract that? I mean, it, that that doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Yeah, no, I, it, it floored me. It really did. And I, I'm like you. I don't have a problem with team shifting if they feel like that's you know the better thing. I mean, if a, if there's a spray chart that that shows you a team a guy's going to hit. Uh, the ball 75% of the time to a certain spot, you're going to want to play defense in that spot to kind of take the hit away. That is, that's, that's a good use of statistical data, right? I mean, that's a really good use of it. But I think it to me, if you want to see the shift go away, if you if you don't like the shift, right, um, there's a very simple 
process to getting to having it stop being used as much as it is. You've got to have your hitters hit the ball where it's, it's the old saying, hit them where they ain't, right? So f- figure it out. You know, and I know not every it's not as easy as it sounds, okay? Because if you're if they're shift if you're a left handed hitter and they're shifting you to the first base side, the pitcher is likely going to pitch you in so that you can't really go the other way. Okay, fine, I get it. But if you but pitchers are not, you know, infallible. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to leave a ball out over the plate. When they do, rather than still rolling over and pulling that ball into the shift, take it the other way. You know, go the opposite field. I, I heard something the other day. Um, it was, I think it was actually, as a matter of fact, after the Phillies game when they were, they were talking about uh, everything that was going on. They had um, Kruk on and they had Ben Davis and Ricky Batalco. And those guys were talking and they were saying, you know, the days of Tony Gwynn and Wade Boggs are, are, are over. And I'm like, well, why? Why? Why do well, they have to be now, over? There's been a, a shift in Major League Baseball, and, and a lot of hitters have made adjustments to their swings in recent years. And now the launch angle is the big thing, right? And elevating the baseball. How one way to beat the shift and, and beat where the fielders are positioned is by just simply hitting the ball over their heads. And so now what you're seeing, and, and it's always been taught when you're going through little league and going through middle school and high school baseball, put the ball in play. When you hit the ball hard on the ground, good things happen. And that was kind of the traditional philosophy of hitting. And now, you know, because of the shift and because of advancements being made in the game analytically, you are seeing teams basically say, you know what, we can live with strikeouts. Strikeouts used to be taboo. Now it's strikeout as much as you want. But when you put the ball in play, you know, you want to have, you want to be driving the baseball. You want to be hitting gaps. You want to be hitting home runs. And we don't really care. We'll we'll exchange 25 ground outs for 25 strikeouts now. And that's sort of been the way that baseball has attacked the shift by having hitters now elevate the baseball, change their swing paths. And, and that's the way that this thing has progressed. Now, it's interesting because you say, well, if you want to beat the shift, why not? just have hitters make an adjustment and hit them where they ain't well I think that you know a lot of these guys it's a different era it's a different game they they know that home runs are kind of what drives fans what drives money what drives paychecks and I think that they're saying you know my, my best bet for me personally is to elevate the baseball you know it's like we used to yell at Ryan Howard when he was here right you know why doesn't he just hit the ball down the third baseline why doesn't he just drop a bunt well Ryan Howard wasn't making 25 million dollars a year to bunt the ball down the third baseline to try to beat a shift right and and really that was kind of the start of it because you've seen so many players now, guys that weren't really considered to be power hitters, completely try to change their game, change their swing path. They're working with hitting coaches outside of their own organizations. These hitting gurus are talking about, hey, hit down and then up through the ball. It's it's not hit down on the ball. It's not hit through the ball. It's hit down and then up. And that's the way things have kind of been taught now in in recent years. And you see a lot of major league hitters completely changing their approach at the plate, completely changing their swings in order to counteract the the shift that way so if a guy wants to bump the ball down the third baseline or you know or whatever to try to beat a defense well why the hell not you know so that's that's kind of my standpoint that's that's my perspective on that I I think that that's a a crazy thing for for anybody to dispute all right I want to just follow up on what you just said real quick before we wrap this thing up so we don't you and I don't really talk about this much publicly but you know we've both coached this sport before and um so if i'm putting a roster together or i'm putting a lineup together do i want nine guys who are swinging for the fences 
I mean, that, so this is where I have, this is where me and the analytics part. Like, we go, we'll go down the path together uh, for so far, and then this is where I will separate from what the trend is because I don't buy it. I don't think that you are benefiting your team and your lineup by having nine guys try and swing to hit the ball over everybody's head and accept strikeouts in, in return. I would rather you have some guys who do that and some guys who approach an at bat and say, "I'm going to try and get on base in front of guys who can hit the ball, you know, over everybody's head." That's where I think that I think baseball is is kind of veering down the wrong path, you know. And so, so I want to see guys try and hit the ball the other way. It doesn't have to be your power. It doesn't have to be your cleanup hitter. But if you're shifting the number nine hitter in the lineup or the number eight hitter in the lineup, by all means, man, go for it the other way. Go hit the ball where they're not and, and get a single. Get on base, and that way someone behind you who can put the ball over the fence, regardless of a shift or not, can do that with somebody on base, and that's run production. And so, I mean, to me, it's it's common sense, and that's how I think baseball. And I think you think it the same way, but it bothers me that we're being told by people that this is not how baseball should be does, uh, won anymore. This is not how runs should be produced anymore. Everybody should just be swinging for home. Home runs and I disagree 100%. I guarantee you that somebody will come along at some point in in the next wave of analytics. Okay, in the next wave of it in baseball, someone will come along and say, you know what? It, it, we we will find that you know getting our guys on base and moving runners around the bases is is doing better, uh, and, and 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 we will and we'll we'll be productive offensively doing that, not hitting as many home runs. Yeah, I think everything just moves in waves, man. I, I think it's this is where we're at right now. It's probably going to continue to trend in this direction. And then eventually there will be some new wave that, that counteracts it and things will move back in an opposite direction. I think that that's just the way it's going to go. And right now we're, we're kind of on this wave of home runs, elevation, strikeouts are okay. Forget small ball, forget, forget trying to, you know, work a pitch away that's just not what kids want to do uh you know the game is at a point now where kids want to play basketball they uh, they may not want to play football uh after all you know cte and all this other stuff comes out but baseball has kind of waned in popularity in recent years and the kids that still play it and i mean i've been around kids that play baseball um and very recently and they they want to hit the ball into the gaps they want to hit home runs they're not interested in taking uh, a two-strike pitch the other way and, and letting it get deep on them and, and slapping it to you know right field as a right-handed hitter that's just not what they want to do their 0-2 swings look a lot like their 2-0 swings I mean like what we criticize Michael Franco for that's what kids do today that's that's the standard you know every swing looks the same the purpose with every swing is the same it's not let me get a runner over it's not um you know let me hit the ball hard on the ground let, let me just see if a put defense you know put pressure on the defense that that's something that i've always tried to that you know when i've coached when i've uh, talked to players i've always said at least at, at the youth level and at the high school level if you, if you force a defense to make a, a several plays on hard hit ground balls you're going to be successful because they're not going to do it fly balls and strikeouts don't help you but the major league game man it's just it's it's a complete shift in philosophy and this is what guys are doing now and uh, you know I think it's going to continue to trend in that direction until you know teams find a way and pitchers find a way to counteract it yeah you're probably right and it's that's I'm I just I'm a little disappointed in that I, 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 I hear think you. I, I, I do get it I think we've gone too far I mean that's the thing I think it I think it works to a point but I I don't think you can push it completely in that direction and unfortunately that's 
that's where we're at. But uh, know, let me just—I I will make one more point about this. Yeah. They are changing the bats on the youth level now. Uh, yeah, I know these I'm, bats yeah. used to just be absolutely—you could crank a baseball, you know, with with these bats. Um, but the technology is actually kind of shifted now, where they're deadening the bats, and so you're not getting as much pop. Kids aren't able to drive the ball as much anymore. And I do wonder—you know—there's a trickle-down effect, right? I wonder if. Because of that, you will see more of a, a a sway back towards. Let me just make hard contact. Let me be a little bit more fundamentally sound in the you know in the box. I wonder if it, it may take a couple of years, but because these bats don't produce the pop, and because kids aren't able to drive the baseball as much as they were a few years ago, because the bats have been deadened, I do wonder if if that will bleed up eventually because kids will be forced to make an adjustment. And it's just one thing that I think about uh, when I make my observations being around the game and the. Capacity that I am. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. You know, uh, I've noticed that you know, with our local youth organization as well. I mean, everybody's got to have the new bats now this year, and and uh, we've been told that it's not going to be like it used to be. It's going to be a lot harder to hit the ball over the fence, which is good. I, I think it's a good thing. I really do, and uh, I think you're right. We might see a, a renaissance back to the old the old uh, style of baseball, but it might not take. It might not be for another ten, fifteen years, but. That's okay. I'll, I hope, hopefully, knock on wood, I'll still be alive and be able to enjoy it at that point. Uh, that, that should, that should, on that positive yes, note. <laughs> yes. That should wrap us up for this second episode of Crossed Up, uh, Philly's podcast here on the Crossing Broad Network. If you want to um, uh, download us and subscribe to us, uh, we're on iTunes, we're on Google Play, we're on Stitcher. Um, just uh, give us a search, subscribe. Five stars would be a great thing. Um, and you can uh, tweet at us uh, on Twitter. Bob is at, at BW Crossing Broad, and I'm at Ant San Philly. Uh, so we will check in with you next week. Hopefully we'll have some uh, good stuff about the Phillies after they come home this weekend, and uh, we, all this Gabe Kapler stuff will be behind us. So until next time, I'm Anthony Sanfilippo with Bob Wankel saying thanks for tuning in.